Well, what a difference a couple weeks makes. Hey, folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel. Um, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks for sticking with us uh, through a couple of downer intros the past couple weeks. Um, when I announced that the show was going completely independent, um, I recorded that intro. And then like two days later, I saw how great that was. Um, like the possibilities of doing this on my own became really exciting. And um, so now that's what I'm doing. That does mean I need more direct support than ever before um, because there's no network, because it's just me doing this stuff. Uh, and and occasionally I, I get to hire my friend Jordan as our engineer to make it sound great. Um, I do need support, but that support goes directly into the podcast. So if you want to help out, please go to benblacker.substack.com and just become a paid subscriber. Um, that, that'll do it. I'm not, I'm not going to do like a Kickstarter. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. If you support the Substack, then that will support the podcast. Um, plus, you'll get all kinds of cool stuff. Like we do these monthly Q&As, live Zoom Q&As with pro writers, folks you know from the podcast. Uh, in April, it's it's a doubleheader. It's two, two great writers, two good friends of mine. Uh, Javier Grio Markswatch, who you know has a ton of incredible advice. And he's worked on shows from Charmed and Lost and medium. He created The Middleman. He created the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance show. Most recently, he worked on Cowboy Bebop and From and Raising Dion. He's always doing cool stuff. Joining Javi on that Q&A will be Jose Molina, his Children of Tendu podcast partner, uh, who also has an incredible career. He started out on Dark Angel and Firefly, uh, Law and Order Special Victims Unit and Castle, uh, most recently, he was on Blood and Treasure and Legacies, La Brea. He's working on the Magic the Gathering show right now, like a ton of cool stuff uh, that Jose and Javi both have done. They're both going to join us to do like a special private Children of Tendu crossover with the writers panel where you ask the questions on the Zoom. They'll answer the questions. It's going to go real long, I bet, uh, but it's going to be a lot of fun. That's going to be in April. And then... Our May guest is really cool. I'm excited to announce that soon, and I will announce both of those on the Substack. Go to benblacker.substack.com. Only paid subscribers get to attend and ask questions and hang out with these pro writers. And they've been great. They've been really fun. If you are a paid subscriber, you can also listen to all the past ones with Matt Nix most recently, Sarah Gamble. Um, Jane Espenson, like the list has been bananas. Akela Cooper, it's it's so great. And there's amazing stuff that comes out of every single one of these Zoom Q&As. So I hope you'll become a subscriber and join us for those. We're also doing occasional meetups here in LA of paid subscribers. We just did the first one uh, last month and it was really fun. It's such a nice group of people. We had about 20 folks come out, um, all paid subscribers to the podcast, all emerging writers, some of whom already are working in the business, um, but all pre-WGA or early WGA. And it was just like trading stories and talking shop. And it was a blast. Um, so we're going to do another one of those over the summer. Again, only for paid subscribers. Uh, and I hope I hope to see you at these. You know, we're forming a nice little community over on the newsletter, which is called Rewriting, which I think is good. Um, so anyway, please support the podcast. Please support the newsletter by becoming a paid subscriber over at benblacker.substack.com. 
I'm still on Twitter. You can follow me at Ben Blacker. Tell me who you want to see on these podcasts. We've got a incredible lineup for the next couple months. Um, I'm doing mostly one-on-ones because they're the easiest things for me to edit, and I'm not <laughs> very good at editing. Um, but those one these one-on-ones are incredible. I'm I'm having a blast doing them. We're really getting to dig deep on so much stuff, uh, and there are some awesome ones coming up, including, and maybe this is one of them, including the creator of Andor, um, Tony Gilroy, um, so many great folks, uh, Sharon Horgan coming up, the showrunners of Perry, the showrunner of Perry Mason. Um, yeah, this, it's, it's kind of, we're in a golden age here of the writer's panel podcast, uh, which I didn't expect just a month ago. So thanks for sticking with me. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Tara Hernandez is here. Um, Tara is the co-creator and showrunner of Mrs. Davis, now on Peacock. Uh, And it's I Told You Off Air, I Will Tell You On Air. It is great. If folks have not watched it yet, they should go check it out. Um, It's really fun. It's really smart. It's really weird. <laughs> it is all those things. He's correct. But tell tell the folks, in addition to Mrs. Davis, where they may have seen your name on their television screens in the past. Yes. So I, uh, I was a writer and a producer on The Big Bang Theory uh, for seven seasons and also on the spinoff Young Sheldon. So if you uh, frequent multicams or CBS comedies, that's where you might know me. From or my yeah. name. If you've if you've been into your parents' house, if you've been and you've seen me alter in the den uh, of every little from college acceptance through you know first script ever signed by the whole cast. Yes. Oh, that's that's terrific. It's so sweet. Or if you work for In and Out, which my dad has for almost thirty five years. Uh, for our, our, our national listeners, In and Out is a burger chain here in uh, in the the Southwest. But uh, he he's probably our, our biggest fan. And so, if you work for In and Out, you have heard of me in my entire career. That is adorable. Did you grow up uh, in Los Angeles? I did. Yeah, I'm from East Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, my family has been here for you know several generations, so I can claim. Angelina, which is really exciting. And um, I grew up in San Dimas, uh, which those may know from either uh, Raging Waters, the water park, or from Bill and Ted, uh, San Dimas High School football rules. Uh, Those are our claim to fames. And uh, that's about it. So it's funny, you know, I, I have a number of friends who grew up here, and it feels like the the TV and film industry was so separate from their lives unless a family member worked in it. And it sounds like that was not the case for you. Like your family worked, your dad's at in and out you, you know, they were separate from the industry. So what was your knowledge growing up of how this stuff worked and how did, what made you want to be a part of it? Yeah. My father uh, worked and still works for in and out. My mom is a hairdresser. So, you know, that's that classic sort of blue collar, upbringing but you know for for them it was always sort of sky's the limit and I think because we didn't know all the pitfalls of what working in the industry could be they always said go for it um you know and sort of 
where my house is, you, you, you know, you can see as many places in, in LA, you can see the skyline, you can see downtown LA. So you've kind of got that looming dream, like, you know, the Emerald City over you. But I think like anyone else, you know, I didn't really know what a career in entertainment could be or that it, it was even a thing. So, you know, I grew up a pretty imaginative kid and um, grew up running around with my cousins and just, you know, being the ringleader and organizing plays and all that kind of annoying, obnoxious kid stuff. And so by the time I really wanted to like do something with all that creative energy and decided to go to film school, that was when it sort of crystallized for me and became something uh, possible. And so I went to uh, Chapman University in Orange County and that was the real, you know, my first entry into making things for, for the screen. I was a film major at the time. And again, you know, without any sort of experience or, or family, you know, in it, it was like, cool, this is great. You know, they didn't have all the warning signs. So whatever the opposite of Nepo baby is, I am very much that. It looks like you started as an assistant on Big Bang. Is that right? I did. Yes. Out of school, um, I got a job as a showrunner's assistant uh, for Steve Malaro and Bill Prady, who were running Big Bang at the time. It was um, just after season three had wrapped up and I, I joined them at the, the top of the writing room for season four. Um, and it was just it's it's such an amazing position, you know, as you know, showrunner, you're you're overseeing it all. So to be sort of, um, you know, near that and just in the room and, and fielding all that. And it's just such a great bird's eye view of, of what that position could be. I didn't even know that I wanted to pursue it. And the time I was sort of just there to, to learn all I, I could. I. Uh, I hadn't even watched Big Bang when I got the job. I probably lied about it that I had, but it was one of those of sort of like when I'd have downtime, like watching the episodes, you know, catching up and then like quickly like, no, no, I know. I know like Howard's dating history, um, but it was totally fine. But it was just an amazing chance to to see what goes into it. And especially multicam, which, you know, you don't really like learn in film school. It's such a different beast as you know and um so just the the intricacies of, of that world was so fresh and exciting for me did you come out of film school like thinking you would make movies were you a comedy person what like what was the type of stuff you you were into oh i came out of film school like a real film student it's gonna be you know it's gonna be a feature director I was going to win Oscars and I was going to just do, do it all. Uh, no, I really did. Uh, I was very interested in, in features and um, I, you know, I'd spent a lot of my college time um, interning in, in the city. I drive up from Orange County. And so I, you know, I was at CAA and I interned for Ridley Scott and I was just like kind of diversifying everything, but it was always feature centric and, you know, I kind of think about it as the, at the time it was like, you know, Breaking Bad wasn't even on. Like if you can imagine a world where like it wasn't prestige television, like prestige was really the like weird neighbor, you know, the annoying neighbor. And there, there was so much great stuff. It's so crazy to, to say that because, you know, some of my favorite stuff is on TV, but it didn't quite have 
the shine, especially for a young film school grad. So I, I was going to come out and I would say, you know, I was really affected by like what Jason Reitman was doing and what Mark Webb was doing in this kind of like indie, you know, leaning, like mainstream work. And, and I think that sort of borders comedy and drama and heart. So that was really my intention at the time. So even when I got the interview for Big Bang, I was like, meh, like I'll do it. But, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to make movies. And very fortunately for me, I had a, a lunch also scheduled around that time with a friend who was working in features and she just had the insight and said, everything's moving to TV. Everything's going over to TV. So I think she said, like, if you don't take this job, like I will. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's serious. So uh, that that was my inspiration. And then as far as comedy, you know, I think I think it takes a lot of uh, maybe hubris to say, like, I'm a comedy writer. I love people who can do it. I certainly didn't have it at the time. Um, and so, you know, multi-cam and something that is real setup punchline hard jokes was really beyond what I thought my skill set was at the time and maybe still is because it's incredibly hard to do. Um, but once once I got the job to become a writer, it was like trial by fire. It was just then you're just like you have no choice but to think you're hilarious and, and pitch with confidence. Um, you know? I'm curious to hear, we should, yeah. let, let's uh, pause for a second. I'm going to, I'm going to circle back to this, but like give folks the sort of two sentence pitch for um, Mrs. Davis. And then I'm, we're going to talk about how you got there. Great. Yeah. So uh, Mrs. Davis is the world's most powerful artificial intelligence. Imagine chat B GPT uh, and Instagram and Facebook and TikTok all rolled into one. All the world uses her or it. And uh, our series is about the nun, Sister Simone, who has set out on a quest to destroy it. And that and that doesn't even begin to describe it. <laughs> that's like, that's that's the plot. But <laughs> oh, man. starting place. Um, so I'm curious to hear how, like, you know, you're working on Big Bang for so many years, this multicam like joke machine, and then Young Sheldon, which is similar in in that way. How does like what's going on in your brain in that time? And then how does Mrs. Davis come out the other side? So Big Bang was my first writer's room. Um, that's you know where I learned how to be a, a room writer um, and and tell those types of stories, and it's a very specific thing. I was in the room uh, on that series for seven years. I was on the show for nine, but I was, you know, a writer on it for seven. And um, we learned that uh, it was going to be our last season, sort of at the top of what would become our 12th and final season. So I had almost a whole, you know, year to sort of just ruminate on like what my future was going to be. And I think it was not unlike, you know, a grief process, a grieving process where you're sort of uh, having a very clear end date to something that you, you love and have spent, you know, the majority of your career on. And so during that time, you know, I was, I was up, I was down, I was feeling all the things. And so my uh, instinct was to, to write about it. And so I wrote uh, a one hour drama 
that was about endings and it's very dark and it was very, I'll say now, like kind of leftovers adjacent. It just had that real sort of, um, you know, I, I guess we call it sci-fi. I'm not sure, but it was a very genre leaning, dark one hour drama drama. And uh, I, you know, use that to kind of express this other side of my creative brain that wasn't the hard jokes. And uh, because I was at Warner Brothers at the time, that script made its way over to Damon Lindelof and uh, he read it and he responded to it. And uh, we had a meeting set up. I was still working on Young Sheldon at the time and was a room writer on that. And uh, that kind of began our our tiptoeing into a creative partnership that ultimately became Mrs. Davis. All right, let's let's get into that. Where, how, what were the early conversations? Uh, you know, like this, for sure, this idea about technology and faith and things like, yes, this is Damon's wheelhouse. We've seen this before. Um, but tell us about how, like, the early conversation started and the premise even started to take shape. So the script that I had uh, written on spec that he read, it uh, had nuns at the center um, and and a lot of nuns. And uh, for him, you know, as he explains it, that he found that really interesting and, and cool and having not, you know, seen nuns like at the focal point uh, of a television show in a while that kind of became a thing that we unpacked a lot. And obviously he, you know, writes about faith and in different iterations across his projects. So we had nuns and we sort of had this, I would say similar style, communication style, the things that interest us. And um, really it was like open, we could, we could go anywhere. Um, but about our second meeting that we ever had uh, was the day that California shut down for lockdown in early 2020. So we sort of don't do that typical like talk tomorrow thing. Like everyone just kind of retreats, as you can recall, as we all did, and sort of like radio silence. We're all trying to figure out what, you know, the hell is going on. And um, when we finally do pick up conversations, you know, about two weeks later, and decide, you know, creating something, generating story, like that's our safe place. Like, let's figure out how to do that. And so we both set out in our our neighborhoods and just kind of walk our dogs and talk on the phone and, you know, talk about this nun thing that we really liked. But inevitably, you know, all our conversations become, but like, what have you heard about, you know, COVID or what are your doctor friends saying? Or like, do you have toilet paper over there in Brentwood, you know, which felt like so far away. And it was just like this constant barrage of questions and sifting through misinformation and feeling scared and feeling lost and feeling like neither of us knew, but we're so like, you know, craving any nugget uh, that anyone of authority could, could give us. And that sort of became this conversation of like, wow, I just really need someone to like, tell me what to do tell me how to behave, how to navigate this time, because I'm so scared and, and unsure. And uh, I think I said, like, I wish there was an app for that. I wish I could just like go to one specific place that had all the answers and could like guide me. And we both kind of were like, huh, well, there could be in fiction. <laughs> That's what we do. 
And so uh, this idea of like this all powerful piece of technology that really did have the answers and had, you know, based in science and fact and, you know, aggregating all the information, um, but also could relate on a human level and kind of deal with each of us as we needed to be dealt with, you know, either like very strongly or with a, with a, you know, a gentler hand. And so we're like, well, we have this none thing. We have this tech, all powerful thing. It's like, it seems like, you know, that nun would not want to like replace God essentially, you know, as, as this like divine force in our lives. And that just like, that was one of those writer moments where it was like, Oh, like that's, that's a thing that feels like that could be a thing. And, and as any of your listeners, or I'm sure, you know, like the thing, when you get the thing, <laughs> it's like, Oh, that's not, I've had so many ideas that aren't a thing. Um, and you, you chase it for, days and you're like this is still sticking and you chase it for a week oh it's still like it still feels right or I'm waking up and I haven't talked myself out of this thing yet and uh it just it it kept forming and you know so we had our we had our nun who eventually became sister Simone and we had the AI who became Mrs. Davis and the world just sort of opened up from from there so it's not a pandemic show but it was born out of the feelings of that time. Um, and, and it sounds like you didn't set out to make a sci-fi show, but it sort of got backed into because of the metaphor you were playing. Yeah. I mean, this, as, as I'm sure, you know, or you know, anyone who's in like publicity marketing on the show, the show's so like difficult to like really pin down. And it's like, yes, it has sci-fi elements. Yes, it has supernatural elements, like as you know, as you know from watching it, like the show does deal with the supernatural, but I would never say it's a heightened supernatural piece, you know? And so it's just, it feels like something that takes the idea of, you know, our lead character is a person of faith and we're going to see that to the fullest extent. It's not going to be abstract. It's not going to be obtuse. We really want to explore that, like it's a real and grounded thing. So we're going to go for it and and do it fully. And uh, so I do think, in the absence of words, yes, we call that science fiction. <laughs> yes, we call that you know a supernatural genre piece. Uh, but I think anyone who makes those types of projects, you know, you really are just trying to like use that horrible G word, grounded, and and make it your your characters and what's right by them yeah i mean i think it's also a good lesson to new writers that like mm -hmm. you you figured out the story you wanted to tell and then sort of the genre trappings come after that the tropes and stuff like that yeah a hundred percent and and especially you know there's so many pitfalls in genre about like where where the line is and what you know and, and you know, once you you watch all eight episodes or even by episode two, it'll probably feel like, was there a line? Like, did they have any <laughs> sort of line on this show? Like, what were the parameters? And like, believe it or not, we did. And um, but but finding that and what sits right for you, you know, in your in your piece is is I think one of the most difficult things, you know, and and what what pushes it in in the right way and and feels motivated in character but yeah i think um 
you know, I know we'll, we'll talk about this, but like we were, um, you know, as many people during, during the pandemic, we're consuming a lot of content and TV. And one of the series that I was just really enjoying at the time that uh, recommended to Damon was uh, Patriot on Amazon. And while that is like an espionage thriller, it, but it is a comedy and it's very weird and very strange. And I just think like, everything Stephen Conrad does is like without definition and just like so out there that uh, that was like a real inspiration. Like we can do that too. We can kind of push and not sort of stay in like strict genre lanes. Yeah. I, I like that. And I love Patriot, love Conrad. Um, what uh, let's talk about that tone and like how you land on what your parameters are um, and like, how you each stretch what you've done before or want to do in this show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, from, from the jump, as I mentioned, you know, I had written this one hour drama spec and it was, it was like very, very dark. It was like, you know, an exploration of what I was just feeling at the time. And, um, you know, Damon read it and responded it to it. And he said, I just came out of Watchmen. Like I can't, go there again like I just I I can't you know be in that place and you really do become the show that you're working on or creating or developing just because you you live in it so so deeply and so I I totally understood that um he said but you know I definitely want to have something with more levity to it and sort of when you know the the pandemic hit it was like oh absolutely we all need some escape we all need some joy so we kind of knew that the bar was set on you know on we'll say a bit lighter fare and especially for you know Damon's work and what his you know fans and people would expect from from him you know we knew we weren't going to do the leftovers like even though we had sort of this heady premise and it was dealing with faith that it was going to be be quite different but I will say that um you know, when we we pitched out the series and we had to know sort of beginning, middle and end and, and where we were going to land it. One of the things that was so important for us was to know the origin of Mrs. Davis, you know, because we treated it like any other character on the show. You know, she's not created in a vacuum. There has to be some purpose and meaning and intention behind this design and, and we want to explore it and so once we sort of had we'll say her its history that really unlocked the tone of the show and without spoiling too much I will say that sort of when you get to episode eight and all is revealed I hope that the tone feels really fitting to that and it feels like oh okay this is like this is what they were going for all along so for us and communicating that to to our partners you know they always kind of knew like what the show was because of where it's heading and what, you know, what sort of style we were going for. Um, but then another element that really came in is once we cast Betty Gilpin, you know, and she's just, she's such a force and she could do anything. And she really wanted to sort of stretch her, her comedy and her, you know, what, what she could do that was weird and wonderful and funny and she came in right around the time we were like finishing up developing episode two. So we had, you know, this whole season to write, knowing where she could go comedically. And that just meant that we could 
push that side of the show even more, you know, and we can find the levity. And then we brought in, you know, Jake McDormand and Chris Diamantopoulos and these like really, really stand out funny performers that um, the show just kind of said, oh, I can hold this tone as well because our performers can do it. It's not forced. It wasn't something we forced. It's, I think, just always in my nature to want to, to want to write that way. And, and Damon is like really stretching those muscles as well. And I feel like once we landed it on, on the actors and they could just carry it, it became like, most people are surprised. Like, oh, the show's really funny. Like I was not prepared for that. I think it's funny to hear. I mean, I think like it's a, it's a great first episode, but that second episode feels like where the characters live. Like it's, it feels like you're taking it full advantage of all of these actors, various skills uh, and like it's looser and it really drives you into the rest of the series. Absolutely. Yeah. I heard it, heard someone describe poker face and just the structure of that series, which I loved is sort of the, the pilot is like their origin story. You know, that's like the Charlie origin story. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's cool from a pilot, you know, sometimes it's a whole season origin story or there isn't, or it's drips and drabs over time. But I really feel like, you know, our first episode is like, here's a setup of the world. It's very clear why our hero is going on this journey and now here's here's the show. Here we go. And so, you know, I'm very hopeful audiences give it two episodes at least, because I think once once you've given it two, hopefully you'll give it eight. But um, I think they're a nice they're a nice kind of double double feature. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask. So so you did all the background work. You sort of came up with the mythology of the show and of Mrs. Davis. Um, I want to ask about pitching this. Like that feels like so much that you have to get across to the studio and then to to the buyers. How did you even pull this thing together? What did the pitch look like? Yeah, I mean, the pitch was uh, feels like it like just yesterday. I literally like pitched it right here, you know, in this way. But it was, you know, and I, I really credit Damon for this because it's about how you give enough but not too much, how you entice but not terrify and um i think for the pitch we really had to be very honest we we couldn't hide things back like the the reveal in episode two uh with annie mcqueen's character that was something that's like our buyers need to know what our intentions are that can't be something that we say surprise (laughs) you know this is a character in your show um the origin of mrs davis was something that we also pitched because it just felt like, hey, if you want to know what you're getting, almost like, you know, being on a first date and being like, here's here's my baggage, <laughs> you know, um, we were very honest. But, you know, when we pitched the show, I will say, you know, not to, to negate the work that the writer's room did, because, you know, so many of the layers and so many of the details and things that I just love, you know, origin of the Holy Grail, where it is, what it is. Um, who are the opposing forces who are also trying to retrieve it? Like all of that was developed in in the writer's room. And that is to the credit of, of those amazing talents. So we had, you know, I'll say like the skeletal structure, of course, and probably more than you would do for most series. But because this is such an out there and wild concept, it was it was necessary to, to give it up. 
And um, I will say to the credit of, of the studio, you know, we had our outline and we had, you know, pitched it to them as it was sort of iterating forward. And, and they, you know, based on outlines said this, this needs to go out as a script. Um, you know, people need to see that first episode. It's just, it's like a little too hard to not, you know, see words on the page or like feel what you guys are going for. So when we pitched it, we had the pilot script written. We made sure all potential buyers had a chance to read it. Then we were able to sort of expand on that, which was a format that just worked really nicely for us. Yeah, that's that's always so much better when you when they've read something in advance and then it can be more of a conversation. Um, what kind of questions did you get from buyers? Are, are you okay? <laughs> I was a lot of like, what are you guys drinking sure. in Studio City? Um, you know, I will say that like the standout because we landed there, like for me, when we pitched to to Peacock, who are one of our you know first streamers, and we sort of got to the big climactic pitch about you know like what what this this algorithm is, they just laughed, they just howled, and just that always meant so much because I was like they get it, they really get it, you know, and um, that just felt so like this is could be a really good home for us because they're not terrified. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the questions were always, you know, uh, how, you know, how are you portraying, you know, religion and faith on this show? How, you know, there's, there's a lot of sort of trepidation around that area. I think rightfully so it's so, so tricky. Um, so what, what sort of side of the coin are we taking on that? Um, and then, uh, a lot of like, you're not seriously doing that. I don't think you're going to change your mind. And like, we didn't go there, you know, we, we had like the full faith and and buy-in of of Peacock and not that they didn't have questions, but they were just like, we're delighting in this. We're overwhelmed at the end of this pitch. We're sort of laughing. Let us regroup and talk to the team and and come back with our concerns. But they felt like coming out of the pitch, they were just like really entertained and they saw the possibility. And yeah, again, that's that's so much of the reason that's great. we ended up there. Um and and let me just get real like nuts and bolts for a second. But in that pitch, were you reading from a script? Did you have visual references? What did it look like? Yeah, we had a really involved deck that we had built that was probably about uh, 95 slides that we did in, in keynote. And so we had a, uh, a pitch that uh, sort of alternated between Damon and myself, you know, we each took about a page. Um, it started with our origin story, how we linked up, met each other, sort of our backgrounds as writers and why this show could be sort of the perfect fusion of our sensibilities. Um, you know, our pitch was again, aided by the fact that they had read a script. So we weren't introducing characters. Um, but even, you know, as you know, in the pilot, not everyone is fully revealed or all the relationships aren't fully revealed. So, so much of the pitch is explaining the relationships, which are central to, to any story and how it all sort of works, you know, in relation to Simone, who is our, our lead. And, you know, her relationship with Wiley and this is her ex and this is, 
how they know each other. And this is her relationship with, with Jay and how that's going to move through the series and be this really messed up, weird love triangle. But on top of all of that is going to be, you know, Mrs. Davis and her opposing force. And um, we sort of did a loose sort of structure of here's, here's kind of how we want to lay out some of these reveals. Uh, here's where we want to land. Here's the the decision, you know, as is proposed in, in the pilot episode, uh, we make, you know, kind of the, the mission statement is if Simone finds and destroys the Holy Grail, she has the opportunity to destroy Mrs. Davis. And so that's the promise. Will she or won't she? And so we kind of came to the end of our pitch and, you know, revisited that question. And I will say in the, in the sort of, process of developing the the series you know we'd ask people their opinion what do you think she should do you know it's an interactive pitch and uh they would feel very strongly sort of at the beginning when we were just pitching it and then sort of by the end as they like Simone had a relationship and Mrs. Davis became more than just words then would be like actually I've, I feel differently now I've changed my mind and so that was always really fun to sort of like, you know, Rorschach test people, like, what do you, what do you want from this? Mind you, we're going to do what we want anyway, but we're just curious. But that's a great way to engage. And like, that's, that should be the viewer's experience, right? And you're giving them that in the pitch. Yeah. And these, this pitch was long, I will say. It was like, it sounds like it. It was so long. And so I think the slides had to be really entertaining. I'm, you know, I'm so lucky. My husband's like a whiz with, with Photoshop and it was just like generating things. And so we had to infuse that with a lot of humor. And I think, you know, for me, I'm like, man, if you're pitching like just straight John without humor, you know, we asked like how it became so humorous. I think a lot of it was like, we needed to entertain people in the pitch. Like we had to keep them on board for 40 minutes and not checking their phones. So that was, that was also one of the reasons that that was in the show. That totally makes sense. I, I'm. Were there other things you discovered about the show through either developing the pitch or pitching, uh, or through writing that pilot? Yeah, I think um, you know just how um, how much Damon and I had worked together on it, but you sort of everything is up for I- interpretation, and so even deep into the series together it's like oh I was reading it this way you're reading it this way you know when you have a co-creator um and it is a really a two-hand thing and this is so much our you know collective brain it was like oh I cannot believe we've been working on something for this long and we have like vastly different ideas about it and it shouldn't surprise me because I've been in a writer's room and I've been like hey I was heading this way I thought we were all heading that way you guys are over here and I'm just like a dummy stumbling around in the dark, but it's like, yeah, to create like a hive mind is so difficult, even when it's two people. So that was the most surprising thing. And um, I will say like, it was the most fun about it, you know, it was the most challenging, but, but big opportunity to, to um, just get to stretch and grow as a writer. And as a, as a first time, you know, creator and I will say probably just the the most surprising to me is that like my sense of humor is so like offbeat, you know, I'd be in a, the writer's room, like, oh my gosh, just 
these hippos, like that they that they are headquartered in a you know old hippo meat factory. So funny and like people like she's not serious. Like we're not actually. I'm like no, I think this is really awesome. And uh, so you know you it's kind of a mirror to yourself <laughs> a little bit of where where you fall when you're making really off kilter uh, pitches and ideas. Let's talk about where the room came from. What kind of stuff were you reading? What kind of writers were you actively looking for if you had specifics in mind? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, really, you know, strength on the page is the first thing that you're you're looking at. You're getting, you know, these scripts and you're just saying sort of who who can I know that is going to go off on draft one day and really, you know, turn in strong drafts. Um, and then just looking for that thing that just felt a little, little bit off that was going to be, we weren't going to have to work so hard to kind of communicate tone. Um, one of our writers who I just like, I loved instantly, like from his cover page, the title of his spec was like Buffalo, 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 Buffalo. And I was just like, what? Like the audacity. Um, he happened to write a really great piece after that, but but it just had sort of that spark of like, oh, this is different. Oh, I'm sitting up, I'm leaning in because, you know, you are reading so many things and uh, what's coming to you, you know, I've read so many this topic, you know, like underground society specs at this point, but it's like, who has just that one thing that's just putting that spin on it that's not not so obvious so that was really important on on the page and then you know admittedly my sort of um a don't you know engage with social media for you know whatever reason but i i knew my limitations just as far as my own um knowledge and engagement so i really wanted writers who were very tech focused, very, um, you know, active and just knew the culture really well. Um, it felt important. And so, uh, you know, finding like Johnny Sun, who's a writer studying, you know, at, at MIT and could come in and talk about Twitter trends with us or Nadra Vidatala, who, you know, came from gaming and just these backgrounds that were going to kind of bring something interesting into into the room. So I'm incredibly proud of the room we put together. It was a, it was a really um, just broad spectrum of, of backgrounds and interests. And uh, it was, it was super, it was super fun to see them sort of, because uh, they only had read the, the pilot when we met with them. So about day three or four, we give them the pitch. We do, we perform the pitch that had, you know, we'd taken out. And so it's kind of for them, like, this is the show, like, this is, this is what I'm doing. There's a bit of like, okay, like, here we go. But um, they, they got on board and embraced it. And, you know, I, I'm so grateful for those talents. Cause if you're, if you're doing it right, in my opinion, you are bringing in areas where you lack and where you need, you know, some help. And they, they're absolutely all the right people for that. Oh, that's great. Um, it, it sounds like a good room experience. What did you bring from your experiences on Big Bang and Sheldon to running the show? Oh my God. 
I had to unlearn so much to be honest. Really? Like there is such a difference between being a room writer and being a showrunner. And that was like such a quick um, and steep learning moment, a lesson because, you know, my job for so long was to just pitch and pitch and pitch and someone decides and, you know, we're going there and that's a direction and I'm helping you get there as best as I can. Um, but then suddenly it's like, oh, I can, I can pitch into the room, but actually, no, I'm, I'm the designer. I need to now say we're going in this direction or we're going to just be spinning out for so long. Cause you know, uh, I would say room writing, you know, a lot of your job is to like find the good in every pitch, you know, there's a lot of stories you don't want to do or don't agree with, but your job is to like make it better and and tell your brain, okay, here's how I can navigate that. So as a receiver of pitches, I'm kind of doing that old trick where it's like, okay, that could work if we did this, that could work if we did it this way. And, you know, we, we started the room in um, 2021. So we're still masked up at the time. So we don't know each other's facial expressions. So I think, you know, later on, everyone's like, I thought we, you were just mad all the time. I was like, that's my thinking phase. That's my like sorting through pitches phase. And um, I, uh, so you, you quickly are like, okay, I need to be able to audition every idea, take us in a direction and, and move it to the next step. So that was the unlearning part of it. But I would say, you know, um, because this is a joyful show and because Big Bang was a joyful show, it's like, Joyful rooms make joyful shows. Like you got to find it. Um, you got to. You can read it on the page. You know. I think if you if you are scared and have a lot of trepidation and nerves around it. So um, I learned a ton from my time in in comedy and just about like bringing that energy and sort of being a cheerleader for for your room. Um, and I think that that manifests in the work. So that is something I think translates across all rooms, you know, is, is bringing that in. And uh, I would say, you know, uh, someone asked when we were kind of in the middle of our room, they're like, do you think this is a drama or comedy room? And I was like, I think like, I, don't, I think <laughs> a comedy room would have really gotten on board with the hippos. Is what I said. <laughs> <laughs> that's but, right. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's the difference. That's the difference. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it sounds like you you found yourself to be a good decision maker, and like that's a big part of show running. The show got made, um, so that's all I can <laughs> so say to that. It. Sure. Were there choices? Were there story choices that felt risky to you along the way? And we can talk specifically about those first few episodes yeah. if you want. Absolutely. Yeah. There there were story choices and even in the development of the show, I would say, you know, the thing that um, was, it was interesting because it was so clear to me that I wanted to uh, proceed with Andy McQueen's character, Jay. um, And the reveal in episode two is that he is, he is Jesus um, and that Simone has this relationship with him and the pitch came really easy to me. Um, and I remember, you know, pitching it to Damon on the phone and he says, I got to call you back. <laughs> and he hangs up. <laughs> it's like two minutes. And then he calls back. He's like, okay. So he pitch it again. I pitch it again. 
And, um, you know, he was like, man, that is terrifying. That's really scary. And, you know, it wasn't one of those like, oh, I just want to be subversive or I just want to do it because it feels scary. I was like, I just want to understand this woman's relationship. Like she's going to pray. Are we going to have her close her eyes and we're going to be on her? Like that's going to get quite boring. Like I want to know who she's praying to, what she's praying about, what she's feeling. Let's go for it. Let's do it. And, um, but that was always very risky um, and very terrifying uh, for, for us in the room. Um, I would say, luckily just, I had a lot of peace about it. And then especially when we cast Andy and just everything he brought to it and he just was so lovely and human and, you know, such an amazing partner for Betty in those scenes that I I was even more confident. Um, And, so that was like the first big thing. And that kind of set the tone of like, these are the, these are the risks we're going to be taking on this show. And it's a really easy communicator of those, of those risks. Um, but I would say, you know, by, by episode four, which was so interesting because that was our first like A and B story episode up until that point, you know, we'd had our really Simone centric pilot and then still Simone centric, but we introduced Wiley and then they're together on their venture in three and then by four you know we have them off on on their own stories which is always a little risky is always a little scary to say you know we want people to get invested in this duo but now we're you know we're, we're moving them apart and so when we're building out the the Wiley story and it's like well Jesus is in the show so like why not the Pope you know like at that point <laughs> we've done the big guy so why not like the next big guy I guess you know next in line yeah depending on your, your feelings yeah so it was like it kind of was like it that set it so high that normally you're doing a show like the pope like what like how do they make it to the pope but it just felt like we're already up here so it's not that crazy um, you know, I will say for the development of that story, and that was that was a beast of an episode. Again, I think because of this A and B structure that we had when we were developing out the Pope story, and you know, with mythology shows, you get you kind of get so tickled by your own mythology and your own ideas. So when we had sort of land on like, why is the Pope in a dungeon? Oh, well, there's this ancient protocol that the Vatican has enacted for, you know, hundreds of years where if a Pope gets out of line, they just replace him with a double. So, you know, every Pope has several doubles and that, that started out with, uh, I think we, we sort of had built it where like Wiley had met like the next double, but there were like seven, like they had all gone in prison because like everyone just kept becoming a user of Mrs. Davis. And we're developing this story for for quite a while. And I think at some point it was just like, it's too many popes. We have too many popes. <laughs> like seven popes is the line on popes. And so when you go from seven and you get down to one, it really doesn't feel that uh, that insane. But it was like, why is yeah, this- Yeah, it's not risky at yeah, all. <laughs> why is this scaring us? Um, I think because someone had come up with like, oh, doppel pope was what we were referring to it as. And- so it felt, it was like, it was very scary. And then it went to the insane thing that was less scary by proxy. <laughs> That's really funny. It also, I don't know, it felt like even just watching it, the J reveal 
feels like the kind of thing that like is invented in a comedy writer's room mm -hmm. and like what if we did this wouldn't this be weird but also make sense and then i don't know like because of the tone of the show because of the kinds of stories you're telling it becomes this very rich character thing and like this great relationship dynamic and has real depth to it like that feels like the trick you know like that's what we're trying to do here. It, it is. And you're, and you're right. I mean, we've seen, you know, we're, we're certainly not the first to, to cast, you know, to create Jesus as a character in the show. We've seen it in, in from like Rick and Morty to Legion to like the other end of the spectrum, like touched by an angel, you know, you've seen these, these, um, these moves made, but it was like, what, what feels so necessary. And it had to feel necessary. It had to feel like, um, you know, not, not again, not just a subversive choice, not just something that we wanted to shock people. And for me, because we had, you know, we had centered this on a nun and I was sort of like, that's so far out of my personal experience of like, you know, faith. Like I just, she's really far from me in, in my understanding of like how she became a nun, you know, I want to know that I want to know what it is and what led her to this choice and you know the only thing I can like land on is love like love and intense extreme love makes us do things we don't expect and I was like well you know nuns are often you know some are known as like brides of Christ oh well she's like really married but like really married to him and um, then it just felt like it both is a joke and isn't at the same time. Cause you're like, let's just do it literally. Like, let's do it totally, totally straight. And um, it just helped me make sense of her in a way. Cause it felt relatable and it felt like, yeah, we've all had that like struck by lightning moment where it's just like, I would do anything for this person. And sometimes we marry them. Sometimes we don't, you know, but um, that feeling seems so universal that it's like, Christ or anyone else could occupy that role. So it made, it made a lot of sense. Uh, but I think it had to be, it had to be such a delicate touch. And then again, like, it's like, well, we've got him in the show. So like, what if we put the boss in the show as in behind that employee's only door? Like, why not? And it's all, it all like made okay by his presence. But it's funny too. I mean, you're absolutely right that like personifying Christ makes it relatable. It's like we understand what a marriage between two people is. And this helps us understand Simone in so many ways. It's really smart. It's really yeah. smart. <laughs> what if they fight? What if they disagree? What if he like is kind of like seeing other people? Like, I don't know. This could be really fun to to get at. Yeah. Um you mentioned Patriot as an, as an early reference. Uh, were there other like tonal or story touchstones that, you know, you could bring to the room, especially to say like, this is our target, something in this area. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was such, that was such a big one. And I think just as far as like everyone sort of like unhinge your minds, like Legion is something, you know, I admire. And I think just Noah Hawley's like work in general for that sort of like Coen Brothers-esque tone um where you're like are we comedy like you know no country for old men being like such an example of like a horror comedy to me you know using like the 
I don't know what the cattle prod thing is, but you're like, that's hilarious and horrific. I don't know how they do it, but it just works. Um, but I would say, uh, you know, I, I can mark all like the inspirations of things by episode, like for episode three, uh, as it's structured, which you'll see uh, Hands on a Hard Body was a documentary that um, there's a very specific style of competition in that show. So that was like the centerpiece, like, reference for that that also had survivor like the cbs competition show we talked about that a lot damon and i are huge survivor fans um so so that was in there and then you know episode six has a heist structure to it and i am just a huge fast and furious fan so that was like okay let's do a really cool heisty over the top you know episode um and I will say uh, there's also a doc called, and I just need to look this up because I get it wrong every time, but it's like, God is the bigger Elvis, which was a doc about uh, this, this actress uh, from the fifties who was in a movie with Elvis and she left Hollywood and became a nun. And it was just like such a beautiful story. And even, you know, she had been engaged and she was engaged to be married to this man. And, uh, they just remained really good friends. He visits her at the convent all the time. And it was just like so beautiful about the possibility of what like cloistered life could be that, uh, that, that was definitely on the, um, that was definitely on the, the watch list for the writers. And then I would say, uh, lastly, Fight Club was also on the, on the reading or watch list, depending on your preference for, for the writer's room. That's great. And it is all of these things and so much more. That's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's a lot. The blender's really big for this show. Yeah. But and it works though. It, it genuinely works. Congrats. Thank you. Uh, Mrs. Davis is on Peacock right now. Go watch it. Um Tara, what are you watching on television these days? What's getting you excited or inspired? You are are you up on Survivor? I'm up on Survivor, very excited. Um, I'm in a league. That that makes it quite fun. Um, watch Top Chef. So those are our two reality competition shows. I'm still like in the the cloud, the like after effect of Succession episode three, which at the time that we're recording this has just aired, and it's just like continuing to blow my mind. I am uh, like so shook with creative joy and jealousy over that episode <laughs> it, it, it just kind of like wiped all tv out of the water uh for me does it does it make you i was talking to a writer the other day about this does that something like that make you think differently about how you can approach episodes or scenes yeah and you try not to get uh too swayed by it because it is an emotional reaction i was like i hate everything i've ever done like this is just so elegant it's so just the right thing you know and it's hard it's hard to find the right thing when you're just like yep that's how they should have done all that and uh and then you're just like dang it like oh like shaking uh so i am such a fan i am like exhausted by how good that was and I, I have no doubt uh by the time this episode airs they've continued to churn out even more incredible episodes so those are like getting me really excited uh right now and i'm not afraid to say i love uh love is blind as just a real escape uh, it started during the pandemic and it's just 
a character study and I think it's incredible and horrible and I can't look away. So those are my, <laughs> those are my, on my watch list right now. These are good answers. Uh, Tara, thanks Thank so you. much for being here. Come Thank back anytime. Man. Awesome. Thank you so much. So nice meeting you. You too.